chapter in Isaiah prophesying a coming deliverer, but rather than prophesying him as a conquering king, presents him as a suffering servant. And of course, the correlation to Luke in our study there in chapter 23 is, should be obvious. And if it's not yet, hopefully it will be by the time we're finished reading. I'll be reading out the New King James Version. Isaiah chapter 53. God's Word says, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. And as a root out of dry ground, he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten, excuse me, by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And he will declare his generation, for he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul in the death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Well, this morning, we're going to, uh, I'm going to try to do what I was taught in seminary, and that is to use my diaphragm, because there's nothing coming out of my throat, that's for sure, today. 
So I appreciate your patience. I'm sure I'm going to squeak a couple of times here and there. Um, I'll try not to use the microphone too much to do that. This morning we are pressing on in our study of our Lord and Savior's death in Luke chapter 23. We have been studying, really coming to this point for many months as we've been studying through the book of Luke. It is to this point that Christ's purpose is being fulfilled. Why He came. We have been building to this and building to this through the prophecies of his during His birth, the events surrounding them. We have seen it declared through John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. We have seen it proven as Christ's enemies were answered, rebuked, not only enemies of earth, but of the spiritual realm as well, and even nature itself. All to drive us to this point of recognizing that this is not just a good man who died a cruel death. But this is indeed God incarnate who is dying for our sins. A unique individual in all of time doing a unique work that cannot be replicated by any others. Cannot be matched by any efforts of man is the work of our Savior on Calvary's cross. This is not the end of the story, of course. There is a chapter 24 in Luke, which we will get to in a few weeks. Um, probably a couple months. Uh, I'll be gone for three in there, so I'm not sure what the other men got planned. If you preach out of Luke 24 while I'm gone. No, I'll just... But um, we come certainly to this point in history And we are inundated by the great number of people involved in this event. And that becomes a little important to us because we know that Christ had many enemies, both among the Jews and less so but still present among the Romans. We know the early church endured much persecution from those same enemies both of the religious leaders of Judaism and growing more and more throughout history from the nations. Why does that matter? Because when we have such a public event as this, with so many characters involved as we're going to be looking at today, it would be very easy to discredit the entire account it would have certainly not survived that generation. But not only did it survive that first generation, those who actually saw it and heard it and experienced it all, but it thrived there, perhaps as great as any generation ever since. 
as many of those, in fact, who were the perpetrators of this very event and the supporters of it became some of the strongest advocates of this one named Jesus. We even have that testimony in our day, and indeed all through church history, of those who are great enemies of this, saying agnostically, it's, it's not true, don't believe it, don't believe any of it, and who set out to prove it wrong and became some of the greatest advocates of Christianity in the end when they had studied it out. Today we want to take some time to look at the people on Calvary that day. Of course, the one being lifted up is our focus, and it's going to be their focus. His name is Jesus. But we want to look at the relationships that are there. And we're going to find a great spectrum among man that I believe are still represented among men today. And we're going to see, I think, some surprising conclusions among even his enemies. Before we do that, let's go, Lord, in prayer together, shall we? Lord, we do thank you for your word before us. We thank you most of all for that one that declares Jesus Christ. Lord, as we look into your word, we recognize and acknowledge before you our inherent weakness in our capacity to understand our intellect, in our spiritual weakness, for we are driven most of our lives by our fleshly needs and thoughts. And so, Lord, we pray for your help to enlighten, to illuminate our minds to your truth. We pray also for your help spiritually to bring that truth to bear in our souls. That it might penetrate every part of our living. Lord, no man can do this. Certainly not with a, even a group this size to be able to communicate to each one. And so our dependence is entirely upon you. That you work in our midst and have liberty to work through this instrument. Lord, guard this time from error. Guard this time from opinions. Guard this time from the philosophies of men that it might be truly your word that goes forth. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have seen the various people groups in their rejection of Christ, moving from Judas to the Twelve to the religious leadership of the Jews to the Roman governors. We have seen them for a variety of reasons, turn their back on Christ. We have looked at that connection to Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected of men. 
It wasn't going to be the greatest rejection that he's going to experience. That is still to come when he becomes your sin. And that will be that when the Father turns his back on the Son. Now we move into that as the, the pre-cross, that, that hours before the cross. Now we have him in the mode of crucifixion itself. And we are introduced by Luke as well as the other gospel writers to several individuals. We are introduced to a man named Simon. Not Simon Peter, but Simon, some fellow from Cyrene, who was pulled out of the crowd, it seems. We're going to be introduced to a multitude of people. We're going to be introduced to women who have been following Christ for some time, providing for their needs. They are going to be spoken to. We're going to be introduced to two criminals who are sharing Calvary's. We're going to be introduced again to those who to some degree take responsibility. In fact, they take it upon themselves. Let it be upon us and our children, the enemies of Christ, who will sneer at Him and will Speak evil of him even in that state. We'll be introduced to soldiers who will mock him and participate in this torture and this death sentence. We are also in John introduced and further exposed to who was there as the disciple that Jesus loved, John himself and Jesus' mother. We have all these encompassing this event. That all Jerusalem was stirred up here. This was not done in the corner. This was not done in the dark. This was not done in secret. This was done openly and very publicly. There were many, many, many who were here involved and engaged. Any one of whom could have very easily said, not so. We have had people question the historicity of this account for centuries. For many, many years, over 1,900 years, they questioned that there was ever a guy named Pilate. In our day, in the digs in Israel, they uncovered his name. Not only his name, but his title. And if you go to Caesarea by the sea today in Israel, there will be set up a in stone this guy named Pilate who was governing Judea in this time period. Again and again, every facet of this story rings true put under any scrutiny the world has ever tried to put it under. And these individuals, I think, lend greatly to it. We begin with a stranger in the crowd. One who apparently is going to become part of 
the church later on, we find his two sons uh, given their names. Um, he is drawn out because of the extent of Christ's beatings that he has already endured, cannot carry his own cross. And while we have an image of him dragging this thing behind, that's really uh, very atypical. Um, that is not a, the, the typical, let's see if I can get that, symbol that we think of as a cross that we wear in our clothing and jewelry and things like that. Um, more likely, it was just a single beam that was carried. And he was incapacitated. He was weak from the blood loss, certainly from the uh, beatings that he had sustained. And Simon is drawn out and saying to carry this cross. A stranger invoked. He's not the first one. But we find evidence that he becomes a believer in this one who is being crucified. And let's make sure we understand what he's being asked to do. Let's bring it into modern terms. <laughs> let's in. Let's invite you to be the guy throwing the switch, so to speak, or at least bringing the electric chair to the room, of tying the rope up for the hanging later that day, later that hour. This is what he was called to do, was to carry an instrument of execution for a supposed criminal. And yet it is obvious, even to him, something unique about this. This man is not like any others. And the evidence from Scripture that we have again and again is that Simon and his two sons were impacted that day and became believers in Jesus Christ and individuals well known in the church. Hence his name here. We further have this multitude. And the multitude has been a fickle group, hasn't it? We saw them a few days earlier crying out, this multitude outside of Jerusalem, Hosanna! Who wanted to recognize Jesus as their King and grant Him this, this parade entry into Jerusalem. And you say, oh, this is wonderful. And, and Christ declares, if they don't cry out, the rocks and the trees will cry out. For truly the King has come. And yet a few days we find this same multitude or a multitude of Jerusalem gathering every day. They just can't wait to get to the temple to hear this guy teach. It is so incredible, so unlike anything they've ever heard with not only the, the, uh, the truth and not only the, the sharpness and the pointedness of it, but the power of what he taught. That he put these rabbis to shame again and again with God's Word. And so the multitudes were gathering day after day, just filling the temple, and they just couldn't wait to, where's Jesus? We want to hear Him speak. And when we talk about a crowded place, we're talking about Passover in Jerusalem. That one season when every Israelite male was supposed to make his way to that town. And so after a multitude 
greets Christ and parades Him into town. And the multitudes gather daily at the Temple Mount to hear Him teach. We have a multitude crying out in Pilate's colonnade, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! And now we have a multitude gathered who followed Him through these narrow streets of Jerusalem. We call it today the Via Dolorosa, Way of Suffering. We find women mourning and lamenting. We find the multitude mixed. You have confusion and you have sorrow and you have others that that are rejoicing. They're getting their way to crucify Him. We have this, this chaos in the mob driving their way through the streets of Jerusalem to get to Golgotha, the place of the skull. Christ Jesus interacts with them. We don't, we assume Simon's hearing this, the multitude, but he selects out of this great crowd not to talk down the sneerers. He's not going to silence them. Not interested in that. He's no longer at that point of informing the ignorant. Way past that now. There'll be others who can inform the ignorant. The ones that he's going to address are those who are broken. They are broken. And brokenness is perhaps that one quality, that one state of being that we so rarely see in our day. In our day of padding people's self-esteem, with empty grades and empty prizes and empty paychecks. <laughs> yeah, you like the empty paychecks. Um, we don't see a brokenness among men. And here we have these women that are identified as just weeping and mourning. They are broken over this. All their hopes and everything that they had, all their trust, all their faith have been placed in this man and they're seeing his state and his condition and they recognize where it's going to lead to and they are broken. And Christ says, of all the things He's going to speak, He's going to speak to them. And you might say He's going to speak comfort to them. Oh no, He has a warning to them that is shared with all of us. If you think this is bad, you don't know the half of it. He tells them this message, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. I'm not the one in serious trouble right now. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Why? Because if this is what they do today, when the light of Christ is there in their very presence, having heard the truth, having seen the power of the miracles of Jesus Christ, having been unable to resist Him in any way. Think about that. That's the history of this week, of this month prior to this event. Israel has been exposed to God Himself 
speaking truth. The power of God, even raising the dead to life, all witnessed by not just people who want to carry on His teachings, but witnessed by His enemies. Irresistible proof of who He is. If this is what they do under these kinds of conditions, you need to have some tears for what's to come. And in verse 29, he talks to us today. He says the days are coming. I would contend they have pretty much just arrived. When it says, blessed are the barren, wombs that never born, breasts which never nursed, they'll begin to say to the mountains, fall on us. And we find that this reference is to that future beginning of the end as Christ begins to judge the nations for their wickedness. But that whole notion of just how evil and wicked will the world get. And those who want to propose that the church is going to do such a great job of evangelism that we're going to save everyone and that the world's just going to get better, better place and eventually it's going to be such a great place that Jesus won't help but come back. Haven't listened to Christ. That the days will grow worse. What are we referring to? Certainly there's a judgment to come in the days of wrath. That's certain to come. And it's a frightening thing to consider that you have to live in those days um, and then suffer eternal judgment. But what Christ points to here is that if these people resist me today, if they're willing to do this to an individual like Jesus who has done what he has done, Consider how resistant men will be to the truth in the end. That it will get so bad that God says enough. All that's left for you is judgment. And as we draw, obviously, 1980 years closer since that day to Christ's coming, we can see this resistantness that as Abraham tells the rich man, even if someone comes back from the dead, they won't believe. Someone has come back from the dead and people don't believe. Given all the evidence and proof we have, even though they write it, every and I keep saying this, every time you write the year, 2011, you're recognizing someone, they resist. They sneer at it. They scoff at it. And Christ says, for them you should weep. For those days, we should be broken. Broken hearted at the wickedness and the resistance that is out here. For the end result is that if they reject who Jesus is and what He has done, that they have also rejected the great gift that comes by His work, which means that they have rejected salvation and all that is left for them is judgment. And that is something to be broken over. As Christians, 
we need to be broken over the lostness of those around us. How much trouble are they really in? How hard is it going to really become to accept Christ as your Savior? Well, the Bible says that a day will come when no one will believe. No one will. And hence the Bible says, today is the day of salvation. Lay hold of it while it is still light, while it is still day. For a time will come when there will just be darkness. And Christ references that here. As He arrives at Golgotha, the place of the skull, He is greeted by two more individuals. Criminals. And again we find this mixed bag, don't we? We find one on one side joining this part of the mob that will simply make fun of him. They will join in and and uh, to say, oh, save yourself. And in fact, while you're saving yourself, why don't you save us too while you're at it? Riling Christ on that cross. And then we have on the other side a very different attitude. Isn't that great? Just as the mob is mixed as Christ is going through the narrow streets of Jerusalem, now we come to Golgotha and the two criminals that are up there with them represent the mob. We have on one side uh, chastising and say, Oh, you, you're, you're a fool. I don't believe in you. Anyone who does is stupid. Look at you, you're hanging on a cross. What can you do? You're dying just like us. Oh, the people that go out there and say, oh, Jesus is just like us. There's nothing special about Him. Just another guru, another individual to follow. Another Buddha. All Buddha means is teacher. Just another one of those. Another prophet. Nothing special. But on the other side is a man who recognizes that who Jesus is. That He is God. That He is innocent entirely. This is a man who knows. And He has humbled Himself to that. And interestingly, just as Christ doesn't speak to anyone else in the mob but the ones weeping, He says nothing to the criminal over here. But he has something to say to the broken criminal. To the one who's broken in his spirit and cries out in this condition as a condemned criminal and says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom in verse 42. Lord, remember me. Christ doesn't have to silence the one. He just responds to the other. I have not yet met anyone argued into heaven. If you're here today and you think you've got uh, a handful or a pocket full or a bag full of arguments of why religion is stupid and and, uh, why you don't have to believe in God, why you can find your own way and why we're fools um, for trusting in it, um, You don't have to pray them out here. I've heard them all before. 
I'm not going to try to silence you. It's your own judgment. I'll cry for you, but that's not my job to silence you. Christ responds to the brokenhearted. And here is a criminal saying, I'm guilty. Isn't that great? You might say, well, isn't that... I mean, you've already, you're a criminal. You're on a cross. The other guy wasn't guilty. Save yourself and why are you Save us. I didn't really do it anyway. If you have ever been in a prison ministry and you go in there, you find out that almost none of them did it. Very rarely do you ever find anyone that did it. When you do find such a person, you have a chance with them. And here's this man on the cross. Christ speaks to him with this powerful statement. You know what? You've made a simple request. Theologically, I would not count it very high on the uh, here's how to pray and ask for salvation. <laughs> it doesn't fit our little model of the sinner's prayer, does it? But look at what he said. He said, first of all, I deserve to be here. I have done wrong. I deserve judgment. I deserve this death. I deserve it. Isn't that great? That is a profession, a confession of sinfulness. Secondly, I recognize who you are. You are a sinless sacrifice. You are the man. Capital M. And number three, help me. I trust in you. <laughs> Powerful. That's it. That's all it is. And Christ responds to that by saying, Today. And that man will die that day too. It will require him to be suffocated with the breaking of his legs, but he'll die that day too. Christ says, Today you'll be with me in paradise. What a powerful promise Christ gives. Speaking to the broken. He's also on that cross. We see His enemies and we see those that are broken. We don't have recorded here in Luke, but in John we have the record that Christ doesn't really talk to the religious leaders. He does talk to John regarding Mary and to Mary regarding John. Behold your son, behold your mother. And John says, okay, from now on I'll take care of her. And he does. But we have Christ not speaking to them, His enemies, but speaking about them. And again, we have this attitude towards those who have no interest in the truth. Christ says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He cries out for them because He recognizes that, that at some level, they have refused to acknowledge the truth that they have been confronted with. And Christ doesn't speak to them. He speaks to the Father. There's enough for you to condemn them for than to add this to their list. I want to share with you, this seems to be in contrast to what we just studied last week. 
were standing before Pilate, Christ declared something. And that is that the ones that had all the knowledge about him and brought Christ to him to be crucified, the ones who are out there in the courtyard yelling, crucify him, crucify him, have a greater penalty, have a greater sin than you, Pilate, who condemned me to death. And now, here Christ is speaking, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Some consider that Christ wasn't really speaking about the religious leaders because they did know. They knew exactly what they were doing. And I tend towards that position, which you'll hear in a minute. But there are some others at the cross there, soldiers. And some of them mocked. And it says that they cast lots for his clothing rather than splitting them between them. It's kind of like the tip. You know, Roman soldiers, this is the lowest level. They're not paid a lot. It's just kind of their tip. They get the criminal stuff. Christ had a piece of cloth. They didn't want to tear. So they cast lots. They gambled for it at the base of the cross. Again, we read that in Isaiah hundreds of years prior to this event, prophesying exactly what would happen. But Christ says, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. These guys are soldiers carrying out their commands. They've done this hundreds of times. Crucifixion was the Romans' favorite tool. But then it got dark. <laughs> Things got a little scary. Things were happening that were unusual to them. They were accustomed to what was going on on either side of Christ to some degree, but they were overwhelmed by what was going on before them in this man named Jesus. In his declarations, in the manner of his statements to those who were round about, and in the manner of his death. And the end result in verse 47 is that when the centurion, the soldier's boss, commanding officer of this detachment that was sent to execute these three men, when he saw it, his conclusion speaks volumes. Christ had just prayed a prayer for him. And this man's response is, what have we done? Essentially, he's saying, by saying this statement, certainly, this was a righteous man. He is making a declaration that we had no business doing to this man what we've just done to him. He is a unique individual in all my experience of all the crucifixions I've ever had. This one is unique. Darkness at midday might get you to start thinking. And so we find that as we contrast 
these individuals around the cross. We come to verses 48 and 49. There's still some other individuals in the burial that we're going to look at. Not today. It says in verse 48, when the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. All that were left with some acquaintances, the women are still there. They've been there for a long time. Luke is the only one that records for us that they, of their own goods and of their own income, supported Jesus and the disciples in their teaching for these last few years. And here they are. They're still there, still at the cross. We're going to make sure they know what the final state of it all. But look at the mob. The mob has suddenly realized what the Roman has put into words. What have we done? What have we done? And today, essentially, brokenness before God doesn't come to the story of Christ and say, what did they do? (laughs) What did those Jews do? What did those soldiers do? We come with the same attitude. What have we done? For Christ died on that cross for me. And if I were the only sinner on the planet, I'm convinced He would have died. For me, my sin put Him there. Why do I know that? Because in Isaiah 53, we find out why this all happened. Why was He bruised? Why was He bloodied? Why was He killed? Why was He jeered? Why was He spat upon? Why was He pierced? Why all this? For our Sin. First person plural. Our sin includes me and includes you. Oh, that we would respond to the work of Christ on Calvary's cross, cross like these who recognize a necessity for brokenness over it, a recognize a need to admit their own that they deserve death, admit who Jesus Christ is, this unique one from God who is innocent, entirely sinless, and our great need for His deliverance. Oh, that we would like that centurion say, this is like no one else. This was truly a righteous man. What have we done? And when offered such a great gift, the question is, what are you going to do with it? For Christ came to take sin, to cleanse us, to to bring us into a right relationship with His Father. What have we done with that? You can walk away here kind of sad. 
and that would be sad. If you think that's the right response to be solemn and sad and leave here with your head down, what have I done? We can leave here hopefully with a realization that people are in deep trouble and we should have a sense of urgency to share this message with them. That's great. But first and foremost, and by first I mean chronologically very first, not just highest priority, but chronologically what you must first do with this is what that criminal did. I want what you're doing to apply to me. And when that happens, we walk away from the scene looking forward to paradise with Christ. We walk away from the scene enjoying Christ's prayer, forgive them. We walk away from the scene redeemed. As Isaiah says, purchased. That we become His sheep. And He becomes our shepherd. That is my desire today. That if you're here and you've never accepted Christ your Savior, that you would do so today. This is why He did what He did. He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. By His knowledge, my righteous servants shall justify many. He shall bear their iniquities. In the court of God, this sacrifice is payment enough for your sin. The most tragic thing that could happen today is if you walk out of here without it. The choice truly is yours. Just as the choice was there for the mob, for the women, for the soldiers, for the criminals, the choice is yours.